Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the 1960s, cigarettes were ubiquitous. Parents smoked them around kids. Doctors smoked them around patients. You could barely turn on the TV without seeing someone with a cigarette in their hand. Actor Joey Bishop, who was part of the Rat Pack, was no exception. Here he is doing a spot for Newport cigarettes during his show on NBC. Hey, boss, listen to this Newport commercial I just wrote. I expect you to write jokes, not commercials. Oh, but listen to this. Newport refreshes while you smoke because only Newport combines menthol, fine tobaccos, and a hint of mint. Oh, that's beautiful. I've always said that about Newport. And cigarettes stayed popular over the next few decades. But then something happened. Cigarette prices started to rise. Health awareness campaigns started popping up all over the country. Little by little, cigarette smoking dwindled. A few decades ago, more than 50% of American men smoked. Now five in six don't. So what does it take for a social movement to face down something as big as the cigarette industry? And what does that success tell us about other movements? The tobacco control side has been so successful against the tobacco industry because they realize that the enemy here is not, you know, just Philip Morris or Salem or any of the cigarettes. It's the brands. It's these iconic images. It's the Marlboro Man. It's Joe Camel. That's Leslie Crutchfield, executive director of Georgetown University's Global Social Enterprise Initiative. She has spent years studying why certain movements achieve their objectives, like the fight for gay marriage or the campaign to expand gun rights, and why others don't. What you learn from the struggle over tobacco, she says, is how widely you have to appeal to the public. Tobacco control activists, the Truth Initiative organizers, did a lot of psychographic really smart marketing research to really understand attitudes and opinions of Gen X and millennial, late-stage millennial and next-gen potential smokers to understand what appeals to them and then created ads with, you know, the Madison Avenue advertising agencies that were doing the same thing for Marlboro and Joe Camel coming at it from the other side. So you have to fight fire with fire. Crutchfield is the author of the new book, How Change Happens, Why Some Social Movements Succeed While Others Don't, in which she tells often unknown stories behind campaigns for change that have altered American culture. So the most significant factor that seems to differentiate the winning movements from other movements Mm -hmm. is this. It's how they deal with their grassroots. Successful movements turn their grassroots gold, whereas other movements let them fade to brown, or they really just don't invest and nurture them. Yeah, what does that mean to turn the grassroots gold? So let's look at guns. Okay. Let's go back to a point in time in U.S. history, 2012, the year of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting massacre. Mm -hmm. So that day in December, you had 26 elementary school students and educators killed by a violent shooter. And at that point in time, there's two numbers that stand out to me. And that's 5 million and 400,000. And by 2012, the National Rifle Association, or the NRA, had grown its membership to around 5 million. Okay. Whereas the largest gun reform group at that time was the Brady Campaign, and its membership hovered around 400,000. So for several decades, the gun reform movement was one-tenth the size of the gun rights movement if you just looked at pure quantitative membership roles. More importantly, those members were activated on the gun rights side. 
So they had a big, intense, sprawling network of members who cared, in this case, about gun rights ownership and access issues. They were motivated and continue to be to this day to defend the Second Amendment. And what you had on the gun control side, going back to 2012, you know, you had proposals on the Congress floor. You had filibuster. There was, you know, so much activity. And people say, if you can't have passed a federal gun reform law in the wake of that, how will you ever have an impact? Well, at that point in time, if you go back to this grassroots, the NRA had a much more visible and robust and organized grassroots base. So what happened after 2012 is Shannon Watts was incensed. She was a stay-at-home mom in Indiana with four kids. She had grown up in the Columbine era. She wasn't a survivor directly of Columbine, but from Colorado, and she was fed up. She started an organization called Moms Demand Action with a Facebook page. And by 2017, by last year when I was finishing up research for this book, after Moms Demand Action merged with Mayor Bloomberg's Mayors Against Illegal Guns to create what we now know as Every Town for Gun Safety, which was created in 2014, their membership has grown to had grown to 4 million hmm. by the end of 2017. Now this year, in the wake of the Parkland shooting massacre, now you see Every Town's support roles growing to more than 5 million. So for the first time in the last several decades, you have a gun control movement that has an equal and opposite level of volume and intensity at the grassroots level that you do for the gun rights movement. Now, this might seem very counterintuitive to listeners because if you, you know, watch mainstream media, there's obviously a liberal media bias. You also have public opinion uh, very much in favor of tighter gun reform laws. You know, the latest Quinnipiac polls have respondents saying, you know, at more than 95 percent saying they'd like to have tighter gun laws. So the public opinion and what citizens want is not in line with where our public policies are going. And that is directly attributable to the phenomenal grassroots organizational prowess of the NRA. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Leslie Crutchfield. She's the executive director at Georgetown's Global Social Enterprise Initiative and the author of the book, How Change Happens, Why Some Social Movements Succeed While Others Don't. Uh, Let's talk about one more social movement. And this is a movement that, you know, has changed American culture. And it's the movement towards gay marriage. And this is one that has often been, a lot of people have remarked on like how quickly public opinion changed. So if you go back to 1996, which was just over 20 years ago, not that long ago when you think about decades and decades of, you know, tobacco use. And right, we think you know, the NRA is 150 years old. So just 20 years ago, we had a Democratic president, um, Bill Clinton, who signed the Defense of Marriage Act, which said... Marriage is between one man and, and one woman. When you think about that, wow, how things have changed in a little over 20 years, um, what is your take on how public opinion, the Democratic Party, how did they change so quickly? When you look at the strategies and tactics employed by advocates for gay marriage, certainly trying to influence And shift public opinion and behavior was part of it. But it really was a very holistic and 
strategically thought out campaign where there were policy changes, there was litigation strategies and all kinds of things going on. So just to take you back to another moment in time, back in 2005, some of the leaders of the various groups involved with marriage equality were at a convening in Jersey City, New Jersey. And it was a real low point for the movement. You know, a lot of times people say now, you know, with demographic changes, it it was inevitable that we would extend this equal right. Marriage equality did not look inevitable. It looked impossible. So leaders got together and they said, you know, what can we try and accomplish? And they started to look at the country, not as this monolithic federation of 50 states, but they developed what we call a 10-10-10-20 equals 50 lens. It's a tongue twister, but the idea is that you got to kind of divide up the country and look at it regionally. So they said, let's take 10 states and maybe we'll try to go for full marriage. You know, we did it in Massachusetts. We're going to try and defend it there. Let's go to New York. Let's go to some of the states that has a more progressive outlook. Mm -hmm. Then we'll take 10 states and we'll try and just go for civil unions. You know, Vermont had introduced this innovation. It's kind of separate and not quite equal, but better than what many gay couples had at the time. Mm -hmm. Then they said, other states, let's just go for relationship recognition laws so we can visit our partner if they're sick in the hospital. But the interesting thing is 20 states, the balance of the U.S. states, the strategy was just to go take discriminatory laws off the books, right? Sodomy laws, all kinds of discriminatory laws that still rested on um, state and local books. So if you could get communities across the U.S. to take kind of one incremental step forward towards greater tolerance, maybe not embracing full marriage, because that was really big leap for, for most people. And then once they started saying, what can we get done at each state and local level, then they started getting more momentum. I wonder, is what um, the people did who were trying to push towards marriage equality, is that um, something that other people have done? Like, you know, people who wanted to curb tobacco use, did they think, well, we may not get as far in tobacco growing states, you know, like in the southeast. So maybe we'll focus a little bit less on those. Have you seen that done in other places? Absolutely. All of the successful movements that we studied adopted a 10, 10, 10, 20 equals okay. 50 approach, okay. even if they didn't call it that. I mean, that that's a, a rubric that we borrowed from the playbook of the winning marriage equality movement uh, documents. Even if not to the letter, the spirit is whether it's gun rights or drunk driving reduction, certainly tobacco control, you saw this movement. Like if you think about the gun rights movement, it's always been a state and local strategy. Have you ever wondered why you've never seen a big gun rights movement on Capitol Hill? I, I haven't, have but yeah, I know what you mean. There's no, like, march on the Capitol. There's no march on remember. the Capitol. Okay, okay. So they know that that's not how change happens. Change happens by marching and focusing your firepower on state capitals mm-hmm. and at city municipal levels. And that's where they focus their resources. And in fact, for a very long time, really tried to stay away from any federal or Supreme Court ruling mm-hmm. because there was nervousness among NRA leaders that it would not be supportive of Second Amendment uh, rights. 
So let's talk about social movements that you think, as you kind of look forward here, might be strengthening in their power. Uh, We talked a little bit about gun control advocates in that vein. Is there anything else that strikes you? Well, I think about a lot about the Me Too movement with all that's going on in the headlines these mm-hmm. days. And certainly from a grassroots perspective, as you have more women coming out and just exposing themselves to the scrutiny and the hatred that they often are up against on the side of transparency and saying this happened too, and, and there's a lot of strength in numbers. You know, what's interesting about Me Too is that the challenges around gender equality, sexual harassment, sexual assault, there isn't a policy or a law that can necessarily change things at this point. If you think about it, in most workplaces, except for a few exceptions, you know, sexual harassment, sexual abuse is illegal, right? What you need to do is change social norms. So if you think about one of the successful movements we studied in our book, the anti-drunk driving movement led by MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, you know, there's no policy or law that says you have to have a designated driver. But because MAD both tried to enforce existing laws, they also put forth a campaign around friends don't let friends drive drunk. Mm -hmm. That was actually invented by a group in Canada, but MAD had the chapters and the local presence to be able to make that go viral, you know, decades before we had internet and things could go instantly viral. And it became the norm that if you're at a party and you see your friends had one too many, You don't let them drive drunk. You take their keys. Designate a driver. That's a social norm shift, a behavior change. So when you look at Me Too, I think a lot of this is incumbent upon men in positions of power who are the ones that can enforce their peers to not engage in abusive um, types of behaviors. Mm -hmm. With that movement, thinking about what, how do we actually shift the norm becomes apparent. And then there's you know, other things you can do as well, like continuing to advocate and push for non-discrimination laws, having more women in positions of leadership and power is the number one way to prevent these types of things from happening as well. And you still have vast inequalities at that level. Leslie Crutchfield is the executive director at Georgetown University's Global Social Enterprise Initiative. She's also the author of the book, How Change Happens, Why Some Social Movements Succeed While Others Don't. Leslie, thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Kara. By the way, a while back, we talked to Zainab Tufekshi about how effective modern protests actually are. It's a conversation that challenged some of my assumptions. We'll have a link to it on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. 